Funding for this program is provided by... Additional funding provided by... Today we turn to Kant's reply to Aristotle. Kant thinks that Aristotle just made a mistake. It's one thing, Kant says, to support a fair framework of rights within which people can pursue their own conceptions of the good life. It's something else and something that runs the risk of coercion to base law or principles of justice on any particular conception of the good life. You remember Aristotle says, in order to investigate the ideal constitution, we have first to figure out the best way to live. Kant would reject that idea. He says that constitutions and laws and rights should not embody or affirm or promote any particular way of life. That's at odds with freedom. For Aristotle, the whole point of law, the purpose of the polis, is to shape character, to cultivate the virtue of citizens, to inculcate civic excellence, to make possible a good way of life. That's what he tells us in the politics. For Kant, on the other hand, the purpose of law, the point of a constitution, is not to inculcate or to promote virtue. It's to set up a fair framework of rights within which citizens may be free to pursue their own conceptions of the good for themselves. So we see the difference in their theories of justice. We see the difference in their account of law or the role of a constitution, the point of politics. And underlying these differences, are two different accounts of what it means to be a free person. For Aristotle, we're free insofar as we have the capacity to realize our potential. And that leads us to the question of fit. Fit between persons and the roles that are appropriate to them. Figuring out what I'm cut out for. That's what it means to lead a free life, to live up to my potential. Kant rejects that idea and instead substitutes his famously demanding notion of freedom as the capacity to act autonomously. Freedom means acting according to a law I give myself. Freedom is autonomy. Part of the, the appeal, part of the moral force of the view of Kant and of Rawls consists in the conception of the person as a free and independent self capable of choosing his or her own ends. The image of the self as free and independent offers, a, if you think about it, a powerful liberating vision because what it says is that as free moral persons, we are not bound by any ties of history or of tradition 
or of inherited status that we haven't chosen for ourselves. And so we're unbound by any moral ties prior to our choosing them. And that means, that means that we are free and independent sovereign selves. We're the authors of the only obligations that constrain us. The communitarian critics of Kantian and Rawlsian liberalism acknowledge that there is something powerful and inspiring in that account of freedom, the free, independent, choosing self. But they argue it misses something. It misses a whole dimension of moral life and even political life. It can't make sense of our moral experience because it can't account for certain moral and political obligations that we commonly recognize and even prize. And these include obligations of membership, loyalty, solidarity, and other moral ties that may claim us for reasons that we can't trace to an act of consent. Alastair McIntyre gives an account what he calls a narrative conception of the self. It's a different account of the self. Human beings are essentially storytelling creatures, McIntyre argues. That means I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself apart? That's what he means by the narrative conception of the self. What does this have to do with the idea of community and belonging? McIntyre says this. Once you accept this narrative aspect of moral reflection, you will notice that we can never seek for the good or exercise the virtues only as individuals. We all approach our circumstance as bearers of particular social identities. I am someone's son or daughter, a citizen of this or that city. I belong to this clan, that tribe, this nation. Hence, McIntyre argues, what is good for me has to be the good for someone who inhabits these roles. I inherit from the past of my family, my city, my tribe, my nation, a variety of debts, inheritances, expectations, and obligations. These constitute the given of my life, my moral starting point. This is, in part, what gives my life its moral particularity. That's the narrative conception of the self. And it's a conception that sees the self as claimed or encumbered, at least to some extent, by the history, the tradition, the communities of which it's a part. We can't make sense of our lives, not only as a psychological matter, but also as a moral matter in thinking what we ought to do without attending to these features about us. Now, McIntyre recognizes that this narrative account, this picture of the encumbered self, puts his account 
at odds with contemporary liberalism and individualism. From the standpoint of individualism, I am what I myself choose to be. I may biologically be my father's son, but I can't be held responsible for what he did unless I choose to assume such responsibility. I can't be held responsible for what my country does or has done unless I choose to assume such responsibility. But McIntyre says this reflects a certain kind of moral shallowness, even blindness. It's a blindness at odds with the full measure of responsibility, which sometimes he says involves collective responsibility, or responsibilities that may flow from historic memories. And he gives some examples. Such individualism is expressed by those contemporary Americans who deny any responsibility for the effects of slavery upon black Americans, saying, I never owned any slaves. Or the young German who believes that having been born after 1945 means that what Nazis did to Jews has no moral relevance to his relationship to his Jewish contemporaries. McIntyre says all of these attitudes of historical amnesia amount to a kind of moral abdication. Once you see that who we are and what it means to sort out our obligations can't be separated, shouldn't be separated from the life histories that define us. The contrast, he says, with the narrative account is clear. For the story of my life is always embedded in the story of those communities from which I derive my identity. I am born with a past, and to try to cut myself off from that past is to deform my present relationships. So there you have in McIntyre a strong statement of the idea that the self can't be detached, shouldn't be detached from its particular ties of membership history, story, narrative. Now, I want to get your reactions to the communitarian critique of the individualist or the voluntarist, the unencumbered self. But let's make it concrete so that you can react to more than just the theory of it by looking at the two different accounts of moral and political obligation that arise, depending on which of these conceptions of the person one accepts. On the liberal conception, moral and political obligations arise in one of two ways. There are natural duties that we owe human beings as such, duties of respect for persons qua persons. These obligations are universal, then, as Rawls points out, there are also voluntary obligations, obligations that we owe to particular others insofar as we have agreed, whether through a promise or a deal or a contract. Now, the issue between the liberal and communitarian accounts of the self is there another category of obligation or not? The communitarian says there is. 
There is a third category that might be called obligations of solidarity or loyalty or membership. The communitarian argues that construing all obligations as either natural duties or voluntary obligations fails to capture obligations of membership or solidarity. Loyalties whose moral force consists partly in the fact that living by them is inseparable from understanding ourselves as the particular persons we are. What would be some examples? And then I want to see how you would react to them. Examples of obligations of membership that are particular but don't necessarily flow from consent but rather from membership, narrative, community, one situation. The most common examples are ones to do with the family. The relation between parents and children, for example. Suppose there were two children drowning. You could save only one of them. One was your child, the other was a stranger's child. Would you have an obligation to flip a coin? Or would there be something morally obtuse if you didn't rush to save your child? Now you may say, well, parents have agreed to have their children. So take the other case, the case of children's obligation for their parents. Now we don't choose our parents. We don't even choose to have parents. There is that asymmetry. And yet, consider two aging parents, one of them yours, the other a stranger's. Doesn't it make moral sense to think that you have a greater obligation to look after your aged parent than to flip a coin or to help the strangers? Now, is this traceable to consent? Not likely. Or take a couple of political examples. During World War II, French resistance pilots flew bombing raids over occupied France. One day, one of the pilots received his targets and noticed that the village he was being asked to bomb was his home village. He refused not disputing that it was as necessary as the target he bombed yesterday. He refused on the ground that he couldn't bring himself. It would be a special moral crime for him to bomb his people, even in a cause that he supported, the cause of liberating France. Now, do we admire that? If we do, the communitarian argues, it's because we do recognize obligations of solidarity. Take another example. Some years ago, there was a famine in Ethiopia. Hundreds of thousands of people were starving. The Israeli government organized an airlift to rescue Ethiopian Jews. They didn't have the capacity to rescue everyone in Ethiopia. They rescued several hundred Ethiopian Jews. Now, what's your moral assessment? Is that a kind of morally troubling partiality? A kind of prejudice? Or, as the Israeli government thought, is there a special obligation of solidarity 
that this airlift properly responded to? Well, that takes us to the broader question of patriotism. What, morally speaking, is to be said for patriotism? There are two towns named Franklin. One is Franklin, Texas, and the other is just across the Rio Grande River, Franklin, Mexico. What is the moral significance of national boundaries? Why is it, or is it the case, that we as Americans have a greater responsibility for the health and the education and the welfare and public provision for people who live in Franklin, Texas, than equally needy people just across the river living in Franklin, Mexico. According to the communitarian account, membership does matter. And the reason patriotism is at least potentially a virtue is that it is an expression of the obligations of citizenship. How many are sympathetic to the idea that there is this third category of obligation, the obliga obligations of solidarity or membership? How many are sympathetic to that idea? And how many are critical of that idea? How many think all obligations can be accounted for in the first two ways? All right, let's hear from the critics of the communitarian idea first. Yes. My biggest concern with the idea of having obligations because you're a member of something or because of solidarity is that it seems that if you accept those obligations as being sort of morally binding, then there's a greater occurrence of overlapping obligations, um, a greater occurrence of good versus good. And I don't know if this sort of framework allows us to choose between them. Good. And what's your name? Patrick. So you worry that if we recognize obligations of membership or solidarity, since we inhabit different communities, their claims might conflict. And what would we do if we have competing obligations? Yes. Well, one solution is that we could view ourselves as ultimately um, members of the human community, and that then within that we have all these smaller spheres of that, you know, I am American or I am a student at Harvard. And so the most important um, community to be, to be obligated to is the community of human beings, and then from there you can sort of evaluate which other ones are most important to you. So the most universal, and what's your name? Nicola. So Nicola, you say the most universal community we inhabit, the community of humankind, always takes precedence. Yes. Patrick, are you satisfied? No. <laughs> Why not? Um, it seems rather arbitrary that we should choose the universal obligation over the more specific obligation. I might also say that I should be obligated first to the most specific of my obligations. For instance, take my family as a small unit of solidarity. Perhaps I should be first obligated to that unit, and then perhaps to the unit of my town, and then my country, and then the human race. Good. Thank you. Let's, I want to hear from another critic of the communitarian view, 
we have the objection, well, what if goods collide? Who objects to the whole idea of it? Who sees patriotism as just a kind of prejudice that ideally we should overcome? Yes? Patriotism reflects a community membership. That's a, like a given. I think the problem is that whereas some memberships are natural narratives, the narrative of citizenship is a constructed one, and I think a false one. Because as the river is just a historical accident, it makes no sense that because the lottery of birth threw me into the United States as opposed to Mexico, that that's the membership that I should be a part of. Good, and what's your name? Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who has a reply? Yes. I think in, in general, uh, we have to ask where do our moral obligations arise from anyway? And I think basically there'd be two places from which they could arise. One would be kin, and another one would be reciprocity. And isn't, the closer you are associated to other people, there's a natural reciprocity there in terms of having um, interactions with those people. Uh, you interact with the neighbors on your street, with the other people in your country through economic arrangements. But I don't know, and you don't know those people in Franklin, Texas, any more than you know the people in, in Franklin, Mexico, do you? Presumably, you're naturally more connected with the people in your own country in terms of interaction and trade than you are with people in other countries. Good. Who else? Well, go ahead. Yeah, I think that a lot of um, the basis for patriotism can be compared to like school spirit or even house spirit that we see here, where freshmen are sorted into houses and then within a day they have developed some sort of attachment or pride associated with that house. And so I think that we can probably um, draw a distinction between a moral obligation um, for communitarian beliefs and sort of just a sentimental, emotional attachment. Good. Wait. Stay, stay there. What's your name? Rena. What about, go back to my example about the obligation of the child to the parent. Would you say the same thing there? It's just a, may, may, may or may not be a sentimental tie, but it has no moral weight? Well, I mean, I'm not entirely certain that accident um, in the initial stage is something that will preclude like moral obligations later. Um, so, you know, just because we are randomly sorted into a house or just because we don't choose um, who our parents are or what country we're born into doesn't necessarily mean that we won't like, develop an obligation based on some type of benefit, I guess, which is sort of shaking. So moral. your obligation to your aged parent that's greater than to aged parents around the world is only because and insofar as you're repaying a benefit that your parent gave you when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, I would say that if we look at um, cases of adoption where you, know, you have a biological parent somewhere else that you don't interact with and then you have a parent you know, who adopted you, most people would say that if you had to pick between them in the case of you know, aging parents, that your obligation would lie more with the person who raised you and who had exchanges with you meaningfully. Right. May I ask you one more question about the parent? Sure. Do you think that a person with a bad parent owes them less? I don't know, because I've never had a bad parent. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to end. Thank you. We'll continue with this next time. Thank you.
If I were working on an egg problem set, for example, and I saw that my roommate was cheating, that might be a bad thing for, who, for him to do, but I wouldn't turn him in. You Just, would not turn him in? I wouldn't turn him in, and I think that, I would argue that's the right thing to do because of my obligation to him, you know. You don't have a duty to tell the truth? To report someone who cheated? Today, I'd like to take, I'd like to consider the strongest objections to the idea that there are obligations of solidarity or membership. Then I want to see if those objections can be met successfully. One objection emerged in the discussion last time. Patrick said, well, if obligations flow from community membership and identity, we inhabit multiple communities, doesn't that mean that our obligations will sometimes conflict? So that's one possible objection. And then Rena said, these examples meant to bring out the moral force of solidarity and membership. Examples about parents and children, about the French resistance fighter asked to bomb his own village and drawing back, about the airlift by Israel of Ethiopian Jews. These examples, they may be intuitively evocative, Rena said, but really they're pointing to matters of emotion, matters of sentiment, not true moral obligations. And then there were a number of objections not necessarily to patriotism as such, but to patriotism understood as an obligation of solidarity and membership beyond consent. This objection allowed that there can be obligations to the communities we inhabit, including obligations of patriotism, but this objection argued that all of the obligations of patriotism or of community or membership are actually based on liberal ideas and perfectly compatible with them. Consent, either implicit or explicit, or reciprocity. Julia Rothau, for example, on the website, said that liberalism can endorse patriotism as a voluntary moral obligation. Patriotism and familial love both fall under this category. Because after all, Julia points out, the Kantian framework allows people free reign to choose to express virtues such as these if they want to. So you don't need the idea of a non-voluntary particular moral obligation to capture the moral force of community values. Where's Julia? Okay, so did I summarize that, that fairly? There is action, Julia actually is in line with what Rawls says about this very topic. You weren't aware of that. You came up with it on your own. That's pretty good. Rawls says when he's discussing political obligation, he says it's one thing if someone runs for office or enlists in the military. They're making a voluntary choice. But Rawls says there is, I believe, no political obligation, strictly speaking, for citizens generally. 
because it's not clear what is the requisite binding action and who has performed it. So Rawls acknowledges that for ordinary citizens there is no political obligation except insofar as some particular citizen willingly through an act of consent undertakes or chooses such an obligation. That's in line with Julia's point. It's related to another objection that people have raised, which is it's perfectly possible to recognize particular obligations to one's family or to one's country provided honoring those obligations doesn't require you to violate any of the natural duties or requirements of universal respect for persons, qua persons. So that's consistent with the idea that we can choose if we want to to express a loyalty to our country or to our people or to our family provided we don't do any injustice within the framework, acknowledging the priority that is of the universal duties. The one objection that I'd, I didn't mention is the view of those who say that obligations of membership really are a kind of collective selfishness. Why should we honor them? Isn't it just a kind of prejudice? So what I'd like to do Perhaps if those of you who have agreed, who wrote and who have agreed to, to press these objections, perhaps if you could gather down all together, we'll form a team as we did once before and we'll see if you can respond to those who want to defend patriotism conceived as a communal obligation. Now, there were a number of people who argued in defense of patriotism as the communitarian view conceives it. So let me go down now and join the critics, the critics of communitarianism, if there's a microphone that we could use somewhere. Okay, thanks, Kate. Um, who, as, as the critics of patriotism, communal patriotism, gather their forces here? Um, Patrick, if you want to, you can join as well, or Rena. Others who have spoken or addressed this question are free to join in. But I would like to hear now from those of you who defend patriotism and defend it as a moral obligation that can't be translated back into purely consent-based terms, can't be translated into liberal terms. Where's A.J. Kumar? A.J., everybody seems to know you. All right, let's hear from A.J. You said, I, in the same way I feel I owe more to my family than to the general community, I owe more to my country than to humanity in general. Because my country holds a great stake in my identity, it is not prejudice for me to love my country unless it is prejudice for me to love my parents more than somebody else's. So AJ, what would you say to this group? Stand up. I think that there's some fundamental moral obligation that comes from a communitarian responsibility to people and groups that form your identity. I mean, even, like I'll give the example that, you know, there are a lot of things about our government right now that I'm not in favor of, but part of my identity is that America values a free society where we can 
object to certain things. And I think that's an expression of patriotism as well. And you know, I, I go back to the parent example, or even at Harvard, I think you know, I owe more to my roommates because they make up my identity than I do to the Harvard community as a whole. And I think that applies to our country because there are certain things that growing up here, yes, we can't choose it, we can't choose our parents, things like that, but it makes up part of our identity. Okay, who would like to take that on? Ike? Yeah, about the um, obligation to others simply by virtue of uh, being in their, their um, being influenced by them. I'm a German citizen, and if I had been born 80 years earlier, then I would have been a citizen of Nazi Germany. And for some reason, I just don't think that I would have to feel obligated uh, towards Germany um, because I had benefited from actions of Nazis. I mean, I guess my response to that would be you have hundreds of thousands of protesters in the United States right now who hold up signs that say peace is patriotic. And I'm sure there are people in this room who don't agree with that. I personally do. And I would say that they're strongly objecting to basically everything the Bush administration is doing right now, but they still consider themselves loving their country because they're furthering the cause of what they see as best for, for the country. And I tend to agree with that as a patriotic movement. Well, but how is that then? How do you still favor your country? How is that still patriotic? I mean, isn't that more a sentimental attachment? Where's the obligation there? Um, yeah, not to bring this back to John Locke, but I'd like to bring this back to John Locke. So, <laughs> I mean, in his conception of, of um, you know, when people join society, there's, there's still some outlet. Like, if, you, if you're not satisfied with your society, you know, you do have a means of exit. Even though we had a lot of concerns about how you're born in it and it's not very feasible, he still provides that option. If we want to say that um, your obligation to society is a moral one, that means that prior to knowing exactly what that society is going to be like or what your position is going to be in that society, that means that you have a binding obligation to, like, a completely unknown body that, that could be, you know, completely foreign to all of your personal beliefs or, you know, what you would hold to be Do you correct. think that that kind of communal obligation or patriotism means writing the community a, a blank moral check? Basically, yeah. Like, I think that we can, you know, I think it's reasonable to say that um, as you grow and as you develop within that community that you acquire some type of obligation based on reciprocity. But to say that you have a moral obligation, I think, requires a stronger justification. Good. Who else? Anyone else like to address that? Uh, I guess we could say that you, you could argue that you're morally obliged to society by the fact that there is this reciprocity. I think um, it's, it's the idea that you know, we participate in society, we pay our taxes, we vote. This is why we could say that we owe something to society. But beyond that, I don't think there's anything inherent in the fact that we are members of the society itself that we owe it anything. I think it's in, it's insofar as, we, as the society gives us something, gives us protection, safety, security, then we owe the society something, but nothing beyond what we give the society. Who wants to take that on? Rahul? I don't, think we, I don't think we give the community a blank moral check in that sense. I think we only give it a blank moral check when we abdicate our sense of civic responsibility and when we say that the debate doesn't matter because patriotism is a vice. I think that patriotism is important because it gives us a sense of community, a sense of common civic virtue that we can engage and the issues, even if you don't agree with the way the government is acting, you can still love your country and hate the way it's acting. And I think because out of that love of country, um, you can debate with other people and have respect for their views. 
but still engage in a debate. If you just say that, you know, patriotism is a vice, you drop out of that debate and you, and you cede the ground to people who are more fundamentalist, who have a stronger view, and who may coerce the community. It, instead, we should engage the other members of the community on that same moral ground. Well, now, this, what, what we hear from AJ and Rahul is a very pluralistic, argumentative, critically-minded patriotism, whereas what we hear from Ike and the critics of patriotism here is the worry that to take patriotic obligation in a communal way, seriously, involves a kind of loyalty that doesn't let us just pick and choose among the beliefs or actions or, or practices of our country. What more, what's left of loyalty if all we're talking about, AJ and Rahul, if all we're talking about is loyalty to principles of justice that may happen to be embodied in our community or not, as the case may be, and if not, then we can, can reject its course. I don't know, I've sort of given a reply. I got carried away, I'm sorry. Who would like? <laughs> Go ahead, Julia. Yeah, I think that patriotism, you need to define what that is. It sounds like you, know, you would normally think that we are given a more weak definition here of patriotism amongst us, but it almost sounds like your definition is merely to have some sort of civic involvement in debating within your society. And I think that that kind of undermines maybe the moral, some of the moral worth of patriotism as a virtue as well. I, I think if you can consent to a stronger form of patriotism if you want, that's a stronger, I guess, moral obligation than even what you're suggesting. What we really need to sharpen the issue is an example from the defenders of communitarianism of a case where loyalty can actually compete with and possibly outweigh universal principles of justice. Isn't that what, that's the test they really need to meet, isn't it? All right, so that's the test you need to meet, or any, any among you who would like to defend obligations of membership or solidarity independent of ones that happen to embody just principles. Who has an example of a kind of loyalty that can and should compete with universal moral claims, respect for persons? Go ahead. Um, yeah, if I were working on an ec problem set, for example, and I saw that my roommate was cheating, that might be a bad thing for, who, for him to do, but I wouldn't turn him in. You Just, would not turn him in? I wouldn't turn him in, and I think that, I would argue that's the right thing to do because of my obligation to him. You know, it may be wrong, but that's what I would do, and you know, I think that's what most people would do as well. All right, that's, now there's a fair test. He's not slipping out by saying he's invoking in the name of community some universal principles of justice. What's your name? Stay there. What's your name? It's Dan. Dan. Dan? So what do people think about Dan's case? That's a harder case for the ethic of loyalty, isn't it? But a truer test? How many agree with Dan? So loyalty. Dan, loyalty has its partisans. Um, how many disagree with Dan? <laughs> Peggy. 
Oh, well, I agree with Dan, but I agree that it's a choice that we make, but it's not necessarily right or wrong. I mean, I'm agreeing that I'm going to make the wrong choice because I'm going to choose my roommate, but I also recognize that that choice isn't morally right. So you're still translating, even Dan's loyalty, you're saying, well, that's a matter of choice. But what's the right thing to do? The, most people put up their hands saying, Dan would be right to stand by his roommate and not turn him in. Yes, go ahead. Also, I think as a roommate, you have insider information, and that might not be something you want to use. That might be something unfair uh, to hold against. You know, you're spending that much time with the roommate. Obviously, you're going to learn things about, about him. And, I don't think it's fair to reveal that to a greater community. But it's loyalty, Wojtek. You agree with Dan that yes, loyalty is the I ethic do. at stake here? Absolutely. You don't have a duty to tell the truth? To report someone who cheated? Not if, you're, if you've been advantaged into getting that kind of information. Before our critics of patriotism leave, I want to give you another version a more public example of what we'll, I guess we should call it Dan's dilemma. Dan's dilemma of loyalty. And I want to get the reaction of people to this. This came up a few years ago in Massachusetts. Does anyone know who this man is? Billy Bulger, that's right. Who is Billy Bulger? He was president of the Massachusetts State Senate for many years one of the most powerful politicians in Massachusetts. And then he became president of the University of Massachusetts. Now, Billy Bulger, did you hear the story about him that bears on Dan's dilemma? Billy Bulger has a brother named Whitey Bulger. And this is Whitey Bulger. His brother Whitey is on the FBI's most wanted list alleged to be a notorious gang leader in Boston, responsible for many murders, and now a fugitive from justice. But when, when the uh, US attorney, they called Billy Bulger, then the president of the University of Massachusetts, before the grand jury, and wanted information on the whereabouts of his brother, this fugitive. And he refused to give it. The US attorney said, just to be clear, Mr. Bulger, you feel more loyalty to your brother than to the people of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? And here's what Billy Bulger said. I never thought of it that way, but I do have a loyalty to my brother. I care about him. I hope that I'm never helpful to anyone against him. I don't have an obligation to help anyone catch my brother. Dan, you would agree. How many would agree with the position of Billy Bulger? Let me give one other example, and then we'll let the critics reply, the critics of loyalty, as we'll describe it. Here's a, an even more fateful example from a figure in American history, Robert E. Lee. Now. Robert E. Lee, on the eve of the Civil War, was an officer of the Union Army. He opposed secession, in fact, regarded it as treason. 
when war loomed, Lincoln offered Lee to be the commanding general of the Union Army. And Lee refused. And he described in a letter to his sons why he refused. With all my devotion to the Union, he wrote, I have not been able to make up my mind to raise my hand against my relatives, my children, my home. By which he meant Virginia. The Union is dissolved. I shall return to my native state and share the miseries of my people, save in her defense. I will draw my sword no more. Now, here's a real test, Dan, for your principle of loyalty. Because here is the cause of the war against not only to save the Union, but against slavery. And Lee is going to fight for Virginia even though he doesn't share the desire of the southern states to secede. Now, the communitarian would say there is something admirable in that. Whether or not the decision was ultimately right, there's something admirable. And the communitarian would say, we can't even make sense. Rena, we can't make sense of Lee's dilemma as a moral dilemma unless we acknowledge that the claim of loyalty arising from his sense of narrative of who he is is a moral, not just sentimental, emotional tug. All right, who would like to respond to Dan's loyalty, to Billy Bulger's loyalty, or to Robert E. Lee's loyalty to Virginia? What do you say, Julia? Okay, well, I think that this is, these are some classic examples of you know, multiple spheres of influence and in that you have conflicting communities that your family and your country. I think that's one reason why the idea of choice in your obligation is so important because how else can you resolve this? You have, if you're morally obligated and there's no way out of this need for loyalty to both communities, you're trapped, there's nothing you can do. You have to make a choice. And I think that being able to choose based on other characteristics and merely you know, the arbitrary fact that you're a member of this community is important. Otherwise, it's left to, I guess, randomness. Well, Julia, the issue isn't whether, these, whether Dan makes a choice or Billy Bulger or Robert E. Lee. Of course, they make a choice. The question is, on what grounds, on what principle should they choose? The communitarian doesn't deny that there's a choice to be made. The question is, which choice, on what grounds, and should loyalty as such Way. Andre, now you want to. All right, go ahead. What do you say? Well, it, I, one of the things we've noticed in the three examples is that the people have all chosen the most immediate community of which they're a part, the more local one. And I think there's something to be said for that. It's not just random. They're, they're, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a conflict because they know which one is more important. And it's their family over the Ec 10 class, their state over their country and their family over the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So I think that's the answer to which is more important. You think that the local, the, the, the more particular, is always the weightier morally, Andre? Well, I mean, there seems to be a trend in the three cases. I, I would agree with that, I think. And I think most of us would agree that your family takes precedence over the United States, perhaps. Which is why you go with Dan. Dan, yes. loyalty to the roommate over Act 10 and the truth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I would, because, I mean. I mean truth-telling, not the truth of Act 10. 
Yes. All right. So we understand. Yes. But on the same example, in terms of family, you had cases in the Civil War where brother was pitted against brother on both sides of the war, where they chose country instead of family. So I think the exact same war shows that different people have different means of making these choices, and that there is no one set of values or one set of morality that communitarians can stick to. And personally, I think that's the biggest problem with communitarians, that we don't have one set of standard moral obligations. And tell me your name. Samantha. So Samantha, um, you agree with uh, Patrick, Patrick's point the other day, that there may be, if we allow obligations to be defined by community identification or membership, they may conflict, they may, they may overlap, they may compete, and there is no clear principle. Andre says there's a clear principle, the most particular. The other day, Nicola, who was sitting over here, where's Nicola, said, the most universal. You're saying, Samantha, the scale of the community as such can't be the decisive moral factor. So there has to be some other moral judgment. All right, let's first, let's let our, our critics of communal patriotism, let's express our appreciation and uh, thank them for their having stood up. And responded to these arguments, defined the issue. Let's turn to the implications for justice of the positions that we've heard discussed here. One of the worries underlying these multiple objections to the idea of loyalty or membership as having independent moral weight is that it seems to argue that there is no way of finding principles of justice that are detached from conceptions of the good life as they may be lived in any particular community. Suppose the communitarian argument is right. Suppose the priority of the right over the good can't be sustained. Suppose instead that justice and rights unavoidably are bound up with conceptions of the good. Does that mean that justice is simply a creature of convention, of the values that happen to prevail in any given community at any given time? One of the writings we have among the communitarian critics is by Michael Walser. He draws the implications of justice this way. Justice is relative to social meanings. A given society is just if its substantive life is lived in a certain way, in a way that is faithful to the shared understandings of the members. So Walser's account seems to bear out the worry that if we can't find independent principles of justice, independent, that is, from conceptions of the good that prevail in any given community, that we're simply left with justice being a matter of fidelity or faithfulness to the shared understandings or values or conventions that prevail in any given society at any given time. But is that an adequate way 
of thinking about justice. Well, let's take a look at a short clip from the documentary Eyes on the Prize. It goes back in the 1950s in the South. Here are some situated American Southerners who believe in the tradition in the shared understandings of segregation. Listen to the arguments they make about loyalty and tradition and see if they don't make you uneasy about tying arguments about justice to the shared understandings or traditions that prevail in any given society at the moment. Let's run the clip. This land is composed of two different cultures, a white culture and a colored culture, and I've lived close to them all my life. But I'm told now that we've mistreated them and that we must change, and these changes are coming faster than I expected, and I'm required to make decisions on a basis of a new way of thinking, and it's difficult. It's difficult for me, it's difficult for all Southerners. Well, there you have it. Narrative selves, situated selves, invoking tradition. Doesn't that show us that justice can't be tied to the shared understandings of goods that prevail in any given community at any given time? Or is there a way of rescuing that claim from this example? Think about that question, and we'll return to it next time. Don't miss the chance to interact online with other viewers of Justice. Join the conversation, take a pop quiz, watch lectures you've missed, and learn a lot more. Visit justiceharvard.org. It's the right thing to do. For this program is provided by additional funding provided by 